just a quick reminder before we jump into this episode that our wonderful author of our Soapboxy article was named Justin, not Steven. I do realize that halfway through this episode, but I just wanted to remind you guys anytime that I am saying Steven, I do mean Justin. All right. As you were. This is but one of a thousand true crimes. Hey everyone, welcome back to A Thousand True Crimes. You're here with uh, Chelsea and my lovely co-host Joe, and we are coming back with part two of Darlie Routier's case. So now we're about to uh, deep dive into the trial. Um, yeah. I know we're just going to hop straight in. We are hopping straight in because we are at the end of last episode. We, we're doing this all in one night. So it's kind of weird for us to figure out how, how we're supposed to break this up. If you guys have tips, let us know. But we didn't know what else to do. Yeah, so unfortunately, this is this is what we got. Yeah, we got limited time. We got holidays, travel. My husband comes back. So like my whole schedule changes and we just got to push through it. So this is what we're doing. This, this is what, is we're, what doing. we're doing. It's a lovely Thursday night. And I think this is important. I think this is important. So we're just going to, we're going to get back to it. Okay. Okay. So we're going to do a super quick recap. Um, Darlie, uh, Routier convicted of, uh, w- given the death penalty for the murder of her two sons. Um, we went back and we looked through all of the evidence that was presented by the prosecution to essentially prove her evidence or prove her guilt. And I mean, again, even just as non-professionals, which there were professionals who verified our, our beliefs as well, just looking at it from the outside, it gave the appearance that the prosecution was trying really hard to create a narrative that this mother brutally murdered her children when the evidence doesn't seem to point that direction. Um, so if you want to hear more details about that, go back to episode one, where we break all that down. Um, I would definitely advise doing that before you get into this episode, because this episode, we're going to be breaking down um, some of the issues in the trial, um, because there actually were a lot of issues in the trial as well. So let's talk about the blood splatter expert that the prosecution brought on as their expert. Um, so Tom Bevel was the blood splatter expert that was hired by the prosecution. Um he met with the defense before going on uh, the stand. And uh, he unequivocal, unequivocally said that the mixture of uh, the blood on the back of the shirt, the one, do you remember, mm-hmm. that was, um, she had a, like a pinprick of Devin's, and or maybe it was a pinprick of Damon's and a mixture. But anyway, she had a little tiny bit of both Damon and Devin's blood on the back of her shirt. Allegedly because of when she was like, like the upswing yeah. and stab movements. He said that this was the result of one single occurrence of splatter. So to quote Stephen, um, who is the author of the article that I'm going through um, from Soapboxy. Um, 
In other words, Bevel was saying that both victims were injured and actively bleeding when the drops were deposited on her shirt. Okay. Which, uh, remember, the prosecutor said they stabbed, she stabbed the children, and then she cut herself. Okay. So that contradicts that. That says they were both actively bleeding when the blood splatter came onto her shirt, meaning they were both attacked at that point. But when it came time for Bevel to testify, he didn't say this. He said that it was from two separate occurrences. Darley's blood having landed on top of the shirt after Damon's blood, implying that, like, she had stabbed the children and the blood splatter landed on her shirt, and then she cut herself and somehow the blood splatter landed on top of the children's blood splatter. And that sounds like a huge coincidence. It's interesting how it switched, right? Yeah. Because when he was being, like, deposed or whatever by the defense, he completely had the opposite testimony. So when the defense heard this, they had their own blood splatter expert, um, Lloyd Harrell. Um, And he had also heard uh, Bevel's initial statement about how, like, unequivocally it was from one, like, they Mm -hmm. had, it was from one incident. Um, So they wanted to put him on the stand to not only explain that he heard this discrepancy and that this expert was saying different things, but also to give his own expert testimony. But the problem was he was a part of the defense. He was like a part of their team. So he had been in the court the entire time during all the proceedings. And um, he wasn't allowed to testify under the rule of evidence which is like a legal term that means basically because he was able to hear what the other witnesses had said, he wasn't allowed to take the stand. Okay. Okay. However, legally, under the hearsay exception, which is another legal term, Harold could have been able to take the stand. But Judge Toll, who was the judge in this case, overrode this. Throughout the trial, which again, as I hope I'm going to be able to demonstrate, and if I don't demonstrate it well enough, please go back and read the article. Judge Toll showed a clear pattern of favoring the prosecution. Okay. So it seemed like everybody was like, she did it. You could have, like, literally somebody could have walked to that courtroom and been like, hmm, it was me. Here's things that you don't know about the crime scene that only the killer would know. And they'd be like, yeah. cool, 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 sit down. She did it. Yeah. It, it does come off that way. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Which is a problem. It's a problem. So... There were also all of these transcript errors. So transcript errors are apparently not uncommon because, you know, it happens sometimes just typos, stuff like that. It's not uncommon. But in her transcript, there were over 33,000 errors. Some were, of course, the minor ones, like a few typos here and there. But some of them were major. For example, notating answers of yes as no and vice versa. So they were changing her answers. Yeah. Um, Here's an example. I'm going to quote Stephen in this example. During deliberations, the jury had questioned with regard to whether or not Darren testified that he had locked the door connecting the utility room to the garage. Mm -hmm. The answer they received was that he did. This is incorrect. 
Darren testified that he locked the front door before going to bed, but he wasn't sure about locking the utility room door. Oh, so this is a big problem. That's a huge a problem. problem. So the reporter, the court reporter, Sandra Hazley, she pled the fifth when she was questioned uh, in court about her like issues in this case. And so I guess there's also audio tapes for specifically the uh, transcribers. Like it's not like a public record thing. It's just for them so they can transcribe mm-hmm. the case later. And so I guess she insisted that there were no audio tapes. But then later, she said that there were audio tapes locked in a storage unit. And then when she was ordered to give the court those tapes, she complied. But there were a few tapes that were missing. So the transcripts had to be recreated from the original erroneous transcript and incomplete set of audio tapes by people who were not even in the courtroom during the original trial. This is a problem. Yeah. Could that be <laughs> grounds under like a mistrial? For a mistrial. I know. Right? I, I don't know. I don't know enough about the law, but that was my thought too. Like, how is this not grounds for a mistrial? They're essentially so she saying lost her license. evidence of like, but I, mm, I don't know if it's considered it, evidence. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, know. I don't think it's I considered know. evidence. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's a tricky one. If somebody has more knowledge about the law. Um, well, the law specifically about transcribers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she did lose her license. So I will say that she did lose her license over the situation, but it still leaves the transcripts of the original trial fallible. And it is just another example of how this case was mishandled and how people weren't really concerned about getting to the truth. They were just concerned about putting this woman in prison and really executing her. Yeah, I know. It adds to the mounting evidence against the state that they rushed this trial with an agenda in mind without the proper concern for procedure. Okay. So now we're going to talk about the diary entry. So this doesn't come up until trial. Okay. I've been waiting for this one. Okay. So on May 3rd, 1996, which is about a month before the murders, there's a diary entry, which reads, Dear Devin, Damon, and Drake, their littlest Mm -hmm. one. Who is how old? I hope that like seven months. Five, seven months? Seven months. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I hope that one day you will forgive me for what I'm about to do. My life has been such a hard fight for a long time, and I just cannot find the strength to keep fighting anymore. I love you three more than anything else in this world. I don't want you to see a miserable person every time you look at me. Your dad loves you all very much, and I know in my heart he will take care of my babies. Please do not hate me or think in any way that this is your fault. It's just that I, and then that's the end. This is what happens after she writes this letter. She called Darren at work, who could tell by her voice that something was wrong, and she needed him. He came right home, and they had a good long talk, resulting in Darlie feeling much more positive. Now, let me tell you guys why she was feeling this way. According to Darlie, I'm quoting Stephen again, she had not had her period since giving birth to Drake and was feeling particularly low on that day. I have not been... Postpartum. Uh, one, the moment that you said in the very, very beginning of episode one. Oh, Jesus. 
like the first part of this episode where you brought up the dire mm-hmm. entry and they said suicide. And I was like, wait, she has a seven month old. That's postpartum yeah. depression. It is a real fucking thing. Yep. And that is probably yep. what she was experiencing. And it makes you go crazy. And you don't do anything. Like you don't act crazy, but you feel uh, in your head you're crazy. No. There actually has been people that have killed their babies on postpartum. Most of the time. So most of the time. Most, most of the time. Majority of the time, you just feel very low. You're very depressed. You might kill yourself over the, your kids because you just... That's a whole different podcast, whole different research, whole different everything. But it sounds to me like she was experiencing at least a, a some form of postpartum depression. So she attests, this is her testimony, is that days later after she wrote this note, she started having her period again, and she just felt, like, so much better. Well, yeah, because your period's based on your hormones. It's almost like her hormones had finally leveled out or something. Like, listen, postpartum depression can hit at, like, two years after having a kid. Yeah. Like, it's a real thing. So that's probably what she should just love, like... Men, oh, okay, different podcast. I can't get into it. We'll, we'll be here for like 20 years. So just. <laughs> so, but then I want to bring up, as a survivor of suicide loss and someone who has spent a lot of time dealing with understanding that psyche and where you are when you are in that space, a lot of times writing the letter is what brings you back to reality. Because when you're writing that letter and you're saying goodbye, all of a sudden it hits you, this reality of who you're saying goodbye to and what you're saying goodbye to and these people losing you. And of course, it doesn't always, I mean, people die by suicide. It's just as unfortunate reality of, of humanity. But the fact that this letter wasn't finished, the fact that she immediately made a phone call to her, her spouse, yeah. her support person... And they got, they did what they needed to do to get help. And I do think in addition to the fact that she finally got her period after having her baby, to me, this seems innocuous. Like it doesn't seem like it's serious. It just seems like a mom of three who had just given birth, whose hormones were insane, who was having a bad day, who clearly mentioned a trillion times she loved her children And suicide typically comes from a place where you feel like the people that you love are better off without you, right? Yeah. It doesn't come from a place of being like, I want to live without the people that I love. Yeah, exactly. And then also... Which in theory is what they're implying in this case, right? Yeah. Is that she killed her children because she wanted to live without without them. And that's not what she is saying. what this note is that anyway expressing in any form and also like my thought was like did she think she was pregnant again because she has a seven month old didn't get pregnant this was may May and the the deaths were in um june june so that would have been she would have had a six month old so it's possible yeah and so she could have been like fuck 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 I can't do this with Irish twins. Like what the fuck? And just had 
like needed to get it out. Yeah. Like, no, there's nothing in there that says like, it's a diary. It's a diary. God, yeah. I hope no one ever reads my diary. Jesus Christ. I shouldn't say my diary, my journal, like my therapy journal. Dear God. I think the Dear last God. time I wrote something down on like a journal slash diary was like in the fifth grade and I was going to marry Nick Carter. So I'm, I, I think listen, I'm safe. I have to. I have to journal my PTSD journey. So like, if I die, don't read that. I'm not going to, because you're going to be like, this is Chelsea. Let me tell you. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck you, Joe. Anyways, continue. <laughs> Hold on. I got to get down to this part of the page. Okay. So I just feel like that is just an irrelevant point. And I think a judge who was being, oh, shit. Well, for a second, I thought I wasn't recording. Okay, I'm fine. I'm fine. I was about to like um, talk to you on Sunday. <laughs> um, no, we're good. So then we have to bring in the reality of sexism, racism, and materialism into this case. Okay. There were a lot. There was a lot of language that made it clear about why you weren't supposed to like Darlie. Um, she was a bleach blonde hot upper middle class mom of three. She had fake boobs. She wore a lot of sexy clothes. Um, she wore flashy jewelry. It was said that she had a ring on each finger. Um, but this is kind of like rude as fuck. Okay. Because like after the birth of, uh, Damon, her second, her, her boobs started sagging, right? Like that's normal. That happens. Very, very yeah. Yeah. So her husband bought her the implants as a gift to her because she wanted them. Okay. So? So who cares if she had fake boobs? Um, okay. That means nothing. But we got to bring it back that we're in the 90s. We're yeah, in the they 90s. Cared. They cared. They, they cared. cared. Um, and you know, it was the same with her, like she would wear cut off shorts and she would wear flashy jewelry. But again, like her husband was proud of his attractive young wife. I mean, you have to remember he was 28 and she was 26. Jeez, they were young. Yeah, of course she was flashing her ass. When I was 26, I was flashing my ass too. <laughs> and you best believe that if I was with a man at that age, if I had had a spouse, which I didn't. I mean, no, forget that. Even when I did have a spouse, he loved when I showed off how I looked. Like, he liked that. And so, like, I wouldn't be surprised if Darren was like, yeah, wear those cutoff shorts. Let everyone see how hot you are. Like, it's not, it's not something to crucify her over. It's just a state of being. I don't know. Like, I don't. There was a, a definite bias against her because she was a young, pretty, hot blonde. Okay. And the prosecution milked the fuck out of that. That was my baby monitor saying about to die. Got it, got it, got it. So then there's the other issue of the fact that the, um, there was this, so the boy's favorite song was uh, Gangsta's Paradise. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The boys loved it. So, at their funeral, they no. chose to play that song. No. 
I'm Greg sorry. Davis, the prosecutors was almost theatrically aghast by this choice of music and wasted no time in telling the all-white jury of his outrage. I'm quoting Stephen, sorry. Oh, okay, sorry. Inappropriate, he thundered. A song about violence and death at the funeral of two slain little boys? What is wrong with this woman? In truth, Darley didn't pick the music and didn't know what song was going to be played, but the jury didn't hear anything about that. What they heard loud and clear was the subtext of Davis's remarks. A rap song sung by a black man? For the love of God, think of the oh, children. Oh, no. That's what, that's what he said? A rap song sang by a... a no. Uh, oh, oh. But that was the... Con- that was the okay. okay, when I said, oh, no, when they played at the funeral, like, I would never play that, even if that was his favorite song. I don't know if I would play that. So then we get to the gravesite. So... Darren's birthday, they had already sent out invitations prior to his death okay. for his birthday. Okay. She, uh, Darlie was notorious for having fantastic birthday parties. Like, they were suburb famous. Okay. <laughs> um, and so what they decided to do was to allow people the opportunity if they wanted to come to the gravesite, they could come to the gravesite okay. and basically wish him a happy birthday. They had balloons there. Okay. And, um, her mom on an interview, which I don't know what the interview came from. It's, I just saw it on YouTube because again, a lot of this stuff has now been taken off of a lot of streaming sites. So I don't know where it came from. I think it was part of the 2020 interview, but I'm not sure. Um, she had told Darlie leading up to the celebration, you know, we've been crying so much. She cried every day. Well, of cried. course she did. Of course. Um, let's just try not to cry during this event. Like, let's make this event something happy, a memory worth saving. Mm-hmm. And so that's what Darlie did. They went to the gravesite. They put out the balloons. They finally had a moment. They shot silly string, just like you said, something that a kid would love, um, that age. And they said, happy birthday. We love you. What's not pictured is all the tears and the solemn ceremony that was happening prior to them going out and basically putting on a brave face and trying to somehow remember their children who are just now gone. And to me, that's fucking sick. Like no. the media. Yeah, that is sick. Fucking sick. I do agree yeah. that they don't show everything. And I would do the same thing. I, I would want to celebrate my kid's life and be yeah. happy. Yeah. And at least if it was just for a second. Just for, just for like an hour. Yeah. Just for an hour. Yeah. And yep. be like, yep. we love you. We're here. Like, we're going to fight for you. Yeah. Like that to me right there, like I have nothing to say. Like, it's just, that doesn't seem suspicious to me. I know. I know. I know. So next we're going to talk about another expert witness that came to the stand. Um, special agent with the FBI's behavioral science unit, Alan Brantley. Um, he testified that whoever inflicted the wounds on the children were in a rage mm-hmm. of some sort because they were, they were brutal. They were quick. It was like a very quick, sudden stabbing. Um, 
And he testified that whoever killed these boys knew them and knew them well. The flaw with this argument is all the other criminals who have killed people in a rage and did not know them, such as Ted Bundy. Yeah. Um, I can go through like uh, tons of others. Um, the Zodiac Killer. Um, who was the clown guy? John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> um, Israel Keys. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a, that is a lie. Rage does not mean you know somebody. Does not mean that. It's not mean that. It's helpful evidence sometimes in cases where like maybe there's not a lot of evidence to prove someone did it. That is not helpful here. No, people can rage kill people who they don't know. That is just a fact. We know that. It's just a fact. Okay. So next we have Dr. Kenneth DeClava, who was the state's, the state's, not the defense, the prosecution's forensic psychiatrist. So he examined Darlie and came to the conclusion that, quote, she was not a sociopath, nor did she, in his opinion, present a future danger to society. One of the main criteria used to determine eligibility for the death penalty. Hmm. What do you think happened with his findings? They weren't presented to the court. Yeah. Is there a reason why they weren't presented to the court? Nope. Okay. Likely because he was told not to. Okay. Then we're going to talk about the nurses. So there were a bunch of nurses that came in to testify basically against Darlie. Um, Several of the nurses who treated her in the hospital were called in to testify, not all of them. But to hear the way that they told it, basically they were like she was unemotional and flat and she was disinterested. That she didn't appear to be grieving. And two of them testified that she was whiny. They both used that word. Their notes from her hospital stay told a very different story, though. I'm going to quote Stephen. The notes in Darlie's chart indicated that she was tearful, emotional, and experienced long periods of crying. So why is there this discrepancy? Now, it doesn't appear like they were part of some sort of conspiracy. Like, I don't, I I don't, Stephen doesn't, the Innocence Project, none of them think that these people were brought onto the day and they were like, listen, this is what you have to say and this is how you have to say it. But prior to where the nurses testifying, like in their, um, their mock trial, they were able to hear each other, which was a a part of the problem because we know like Mm -hmm. group mentality, you kind of lean into it. But also, as they passed around pictures of Darlie's injuries, the defense or the prosecution put in Devin and Damon's autopsy photos mixed in with those pictures. There wasn't a reason for this. How is that and not so, a mistrial? I don't know, Charles. I don't know. And if somebody else, and maybe it will be, maybe it will be when she presents this to another court, maybe it will be. Because they weren't being asked about the boys' autopsies. They were, they were, like, talking about her. And that's going to fuck with somebody's brain. Of, that's, okay. If you see a picture of two bit dead babies, like, yeah, it's going to fuck with your brain. 
So I guess that's the speculation there is that they did that specifically to arouse an emotional response from these women and then combine that with the zeitgeist of the entire country. Yeah. Being against her, like this woman, this yeah. yeah, blonde, skinny, beautiful nineties, mm-hmm. semi-rich, semi-rich. Yep. What was me? So then the nurses are going to be like, Oh yeah, no, she wasn't, she didn't, or they will contradict themselves based off of their own notes. Um, it's worth noting that not everyone who treated Darlie was called to testify. Teresa Powers, who was a trauma nurse, provided uh, an affidavit to the court. Um, when Darlie's, so initially she had some court-appointed attorneys. She no longer has those, obviously. When they referenced this affidavit in a pretrial hearing, Davis, one of the prosecutors, immediately objected on the grounds that it was hearsay, and it was sustained by Judge Toll. But it's an affidavit. That means it's signed by, like, law. It's no different than the other nurse's testimony. It's no different than getting that shit notarized. Yeah, but hers wasn't allowed in, and the judge allowed that, which, again, I'm just, it proves kind of the point that, like, he was biased. It's an, I shouldn't say it proves the point. It, it, it's another, it's another example against his, yeah, willingness to be impartial mm-hmm. and showed his bias towards the prosecution. We don't know what this affidavit said, um, and we don't know why it was kept out, but it was. Okay, so reporter uh, Sandra Hazy pled the fifth when questioned about the arrows in the trials transcripts, which you know that. So we're going to talk about some other characters who pled the fifth um, during this case. So lead detectives Jimmy Patterson and Chris Brosh would also plead the fifth. They were called by the state to testify, and it, but it was actually the defense that put them on the stand. So what we find out is that they had crossed a little bit of legal gray area. They had set up a hidden microphone at the cemetery where the funeral services for the children were being held. They did this in hopes that they would catch some kind of like graveside confession or something like that. But the defense attorney, Doug Mulder, he took this opportunity to... uh kind of uh, attack the detectives and imply that they had broken the law in some ground. And this resulted in both of the detectives taking the fifth. Um, Just kind of frustrating because it would have been a great opportunity for him to say, well, did you hear her say anything? And then they would have said no, and then they could have moved on. But um, he did not... He did not take that opportunity. So then Darley takes the stand. Oh, no, don't ever take the stand. I know. Don't I ever know, take the stand. Don't do it, girl. And I mean, she had a hard time. She had a really hard time. So when she was in jail, she had written letters to friends and family about like <clears throat> who could have done this. And like she named some people who she thought might have been the killers and like just just like private information that she was writing to friends and family. If you've ever had a relative in prison, like it's the main way that you can communicate or I should say in jail. It's one of the main ways that you communicate because phones are hard to come by. Um, and so basically like between this and between like bringing her diary stuff into the 
the court and like, it's just, I mean, it was a huge violation of privacy. And of course she got frustrated. Mm-hmm. She got frustrated and she got angry and she didn't lash out. There weren't any like major, like explosions of anger or anything like that. She just kind of like, she would cry or she wouldn't be able to answer questions or she would like take a minute answering them or she would be like indignant about things. It wasn't so much like with um, Ted Bundy where like he had a moment where he lashed out in anger and the court got to see that and they were like, oh shit. It was just more like, it was clear. Like she was like, how did you like... It's fucked up. Like all of her privacy was gone and she didn't understand that that was happening. So the timeline finally got presented by the prosecution. And I'm going to quote Stephen again, because again, this is just hard to recreate in a way that is not plagiarism. So I'm going to read this. So this is their claim um, that Darlie had enough time to commit the murders, run 75 yards down the alley, deposit the sock, come back with Devin and Damon's blood, slash the throat, inflict injuries, blah, blah, blah. So here we go. So we're going to think, so let's think about this for a minute. Darlie's call to 911 came in at 2.31 and lasted five minutes and 44 seconds. The sock had to have been placed in the alleyway after the children were stabbed since spots of blood on the sock were sourced to both of the boys. Paramedics arrived at the scene at about 2.40 and paramedic Jack Colby witnessed Damon gasp his last breath immediately after he began attending to him. This means that Damon had to have been stabbed within about a a minute before the 911 call began. Even if you add a couple minutes to Parchman's opinion that he only lived eight or nine minutes, that still does not give Darlie enough time to accomplish everything the prosecution claims that she did. There are those that steadfastly claim she could have feasibly done it, but it's just too far of a reach as I'm concerned. Okay. Okay. So who did it? Right. That's where I'm at. I'm like, where's like the family's history? Who could possibly be an enemy? Like, where's the defense at this point? Here we go. At around 1.30 a.m. I'm sorry, I'm quoting Stephen again at this point. Mary Angela Rickles and her 15-year-old daughter were up late watching a horror film. Rickles, a 34-year-old registered nurse who lived about half a mile from the routine Routiers testified that she heard the sounds of someone trying to get in the front door. Since her husband worked nights and often came home during his break to check on her, she was not unduly concerned, even when the jiggling at the door continues. Rickles explained the lock was difficult to maneuver and would sometimes take several tries before opening. After a couple minutes, however, there came a loud bang and what sounded like splintering wood. Rickles went to the door, looked out the people, there were two strange men standing on her front porch. She turned on the porch light and the men ran off. Rickles was shaken, but not alarmed enough to summon police. About 15 to 20 minutes later, Rickles heard noises again, this time coming from her daughter's empty first floor bedroom. Rickles peered out the blinds and saw that the men had returned and were trying to get in the window. This time, one of them had what appeared to be a screwdriver or a knife. Rickles turned on the bedroom light, and once again, the man ran off. They did not return. Still, Rickles did not call 911. Mm, Talk about some guilt. So, it turns out... So, she didn't report this information until June 11th, um, which is uh, five days after the murders. The investigator dismissed Rickles pretty quickly as a lying lunatic... 
or a brain-damaged stroke victim on a cocktail of drugs. But this wasn't, like, what was actually going on. So she was in decently good health. She had suffered a stroke during childbirth the previous fall, and she had had cardiac issues and was treated for three minor heart attacks during the summer of 1996. Additionally, she had been prescribed an antidepressant trazodone um, after she lost her brother that, that summer. But none of those things make me feel like she's a, what did he say? A lying lunatic or a brain damaged stroke victim on a cocktail of drugs. Wow. Okay. So he would not have a job today in 2022, almost. No. Almost 2022. No. He completely discredited her. Because she wasn't and the like, perfect, yeah. he, they didn't, she didn't fit his narrative. I know. Mm-hmm. I know. This was in the neighborhood. These were clearly two men who were trying to break into a house. They didn't realize somebody was home. Once they did realize someone was home, they ran off. And, like, yeah, totally. They could have, like, she should have called the police. She, and I know yes. that she feels, like, shit about that. But <laughs> in her mind, she thought they ran off. So, like, what are the police going to do? Yeah. Like, they can't help me now. And I'm sure now, looking back, she's probably like, shit, well, at least we could have gotten something on record. So Darlie could have, like had something. Um, and then there was an affidavit of Darlene Porter. She said she called the police on July 10th, 2002. Okay. So this is six years after she has been convicted. So this is more evidence in favor of her that she remembers sometime after the murder okay where she was driving at night and she saw someone walking down the road barefoot. like it was like late at night it was dark and they were barefoot okay 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 so that so that was so that wasn't in the trial but like that's just more testimony to like potentially add to her case okay okay so then there's an article that Stephen read our author I swear, I hope his name is Stephen. I feel like I've changed his name three times. Stephen, right? Yeah, you said Stephen. I haven't heard any different name. Justin. 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 You're going to have to really change a lot of Stephen's suggestion. If I have been saying Stephen, it is Justin the whole time. So Justin tells us that in the Dateline Purgatory examining the case that sentenced Darlene Routier to death by Kathy Cruz, that there's a chapter in that book that was super, super interesting. Okay. So in 1998, there was an inmate at a facility, right? The inmate is called Carl. Um, I don't know if that's his real name. I'm sure that the powers that be know his real name or not, but there was a letter that was sent to um, officials, So Carl, who was then incarcerated at the Potter County Jail, and I'm going to quote uh, Justin, described an argument he had heard between two inmates in late fall of 1996 as they were coming in from the rec yard. The two men were arguing heatedly about a crime in which they had both been involved and in which young children were stabbed with knives. Carl heard them mention the name Darla at the time. 
Now, Carl had been in months for jail, uh, in jail for months, and he didn't know anything about the Rowlett murders, and he didn't know anything about Darlie and her family or anything like that. Um, but he didn't like hearing the conversation. Um, and so he confronted one of the men. And um, it was a stocky, blonde-haired cowboy, originally from Oklahoma, who was called Arkansas. So I guess Arkansas told him that he had no choice but to kill the kid since the kid had seen his face and tried to run out of the room toward the hallway. He was known, Arkansas, not Carl, Arkansas was known for his quick and violent temper and substance abuse issues. Um, He had come into Potter County Jail in July of 1996 after carjacking a guy at knife point. And Arkansas had also requested to see a psychiatrist in jail as he claimed he was suffering from nightmares and flashbacks relating to one of his past crimes. He had also attempted to hang himself in his cell, but he wasn't successful. He was treated and evaluated that he was not at serious suicide risk, released back into Gen Pop. Um, And then on December 28th, 1996, Arkansas was found hanging in his cell once again, this time his hands tied securely in front of him with a bedsheet. Although the medical examiner found this to be suspicious, in the end, his death was classified as a suicide. In early 1998, Carl was in jail reading the New York Magazine when he came upon an article about the impending execution of Carla Faye Tucker. Darlie's story was also featured in this uh, magazine. And when Carl heard her name and the fact that her children had been stabbed to death in June of 1996, it clicked in his brain that this guy had to be the, this was the murder that these two people were talking about back in 96. So he wrote to Darlie sharing what he knew. He also wrote to the Houston attorney, like I said, Mm -hmm. um, former um, investigative reporter Quincy, Quincy McNeil, and telling them the same story. And, of course, everyone was skeptical. Because you know how it is. Yeah, with jailhouse. Like, Mm -hmm. you never know. Um, But he did do some digging. And he began submitting, like, a lot of record requests for the inmates at Potter County Jail in the fall of 96. And every time he would get, like, a mugshot about, like, this person or that person. Because the only name he had was Arkansas. Like, right? He didn't know his actual name. And then... Finally, after one, after he sent one to Carl, he was able to send a note back to Quincy that that was Arkansas. Um, so once they were to able to identify this person, they were able to identify known associates. Um, there was a married couple named Dwayne and Karen. Um, Quincy, this investigator, was able to meet with Karen while she was in jail at the Lubbock County Jail. And according to her, and I'm quoting Stephen again, in er- Justin. Quoting Justin again, in early June of 1996, Arkansas, Dwayne, and a third man got into a fight about drugs and took a road trip headed for Dallas in a stolen white truck. From what Karen remembers hearing from Dwayne upon their return, the men had broken into a house that was supposed to be empty and fuck some people up. So it's a robbery gone wrong. Karen said they had broken into the house and it all went bad. There were young children in the room. A fight broke out. The kids woke up and all hell broke loose. So this is what I'm going to point out to all of you guys. or I'm going to let you guys know the night that they were robbed 
Darren's car was having issues. So it was in the shop. And for whatever reason, Darlie's car was parked on the street. So the house for all intents and purposes looked empty. Mm. So I pose you this, which is primarily Justin's, uh, theory as well. If these men broke into this house, anticipating an empty house, let's say they walk in and they see Darlie 26 blonde, beautiful, fake boobs, skinny. And they think, great. I get a rape for free on top of my burglary. And they jump on top of her and realize the boys are in the room. I don't know what that in- exchange happened, but let's say the youngest one, like if we're going to believe that this jailhouse story woke up and tried to run for his dad. And then the person grabs him, pulls him back. Maybe he kicks, maybe he hits, maybe he punches someone and that pisses the guy off, stabs him to death. All this while Darlie is trying to fight our fight off the other person who's in there. Mm-hmm. They realize the other baby's on the floor and he's now seen their faces. So they stab him too. The guy slashes Darlie's neck, assumes that she's dead, tr- starts to run out of the house. Even if she's crawling behind him, he's like, she's going to bleed out. Yeah. Like she's not going to make it. And if it was the same two guys who went to that neighbor's house first it would make it clear that one of them already had a weapon. Mm -hmm. So the other person who grabbed a weapon, grabbed a weapon from the house. Yeah. And dropped it as he left. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, there's so much like circumstantial and unreasonable doubt. I don't think she did it. I just don't think she did it. I think she was a victim. Everything that you have told me, and like, again, haven't done my own research, but like, I am leaning towards that too. She is scheduled to do another case. Um, And I will tell you, the Innocence Project has uh, taken on her case. It's case number F9639973. Um, And you can see... Um, all of their information about the case there. Um, their statement is on June 26, 1996, someone brutally murdered two little boys and got away with it. Their mother has been fighting to get off death row for over 23 years. I mean, yeah, it just, a lot of things do not make sense. And it does seem like the prosecution was like, I found the easy way out. Let's pin it on her. She's done. There we go. And move forward. Do you want to hear a fun, uh, non-related, but interesting quote? Hmm. Okay. Quote, unquote, because of what happened to that woman in Texas, John Ramsey, when asked why he obtained legal counsel immediately following his daughter, John Bonet's murder. I was going to say a lot of this reminded me of John Bonet in the beginning, like the phone call and the everything like that crazy it's wild this case just blows my mind and i i ache for her yeah i really do i am fully team she's innocent she didn't do anything and it just breaks my heart that this poor woman has been on death row for 23 years she lost her babies yeah and was in jail for 23 years 
That's insane. Yeah, it just seems like if at the end of the day, definitely mistrial. She deserves a mistrial. She deserves a mistrial at least. Like it, it, there's so much evidence that should have been presented to the jury. There's a lot of prejudice. You can see it, and that's a mistrial in itself. Mm-hmm. One hundred percent mistrial. So I don't know. Hopefully, we'll see, we'll what, see happens. what happens. Yeah. But she's supposed to be shit. getting a new case. And again, I think COVID just slowed all that down. Mm-hmm. So it's a little delayed, but it should be coming soon. And the fact that when I'm like trying to Google like all these documentaries that I know exist because I have watched them. In the and then they're gone. <laughs> they're all gone. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Shoot. Damn. Okay. Well, let us know what y'all think. Joe Post. So we're just going to say y'all get an attorney. If anything happens, get an attorney. Oh, geez, yes. If the cops want to talk to you and say, come down to the station and say, cool, 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 cool. Talk to my lawyer. Talk to my lawyer. Mm -hmm. I'll wait till I get an attorney and then I will absolutely talk to Even if you're like, bitch, there is surveillance cameras of me at the gosh dang grocery store. Like, oh, like, yeah, no, just get, get, just get, just do it and lock your damn garage doors. To your house. Oh, for the love of God. For the love of God. Your garage is not secure. Just lock. Well, mine is because it's not attached to my house. So good luck. My back door's locked. So I'm good. Okay. Uh, that's you're right. If you have an attached garage, that door is not secure because your garage is not secure. Yeah. If you if you want to bring it into my garage, go go ahead. Have fun with um all the plastic that's in there from all my kids' toys. <laughs> You and can you can get stuff, a tooth. Sa- oh, will be very sad. Yeah, I'll get over it. Um, have fun with uh, a TV that, that I do have a TV in there from two thousand <laughs> and like fourteen. Go, have a great time. Go, so I'm living the life. Let me tell you. Um. So yeah. Oh, I will add. This is like I don't know. There was a dog in the house, and everyone's like, "Oh, why didn't the dog bark?" Because like, there's like, but I'm like. If they didn't hear it. Because they were down in the basement and the dad. And they were up it, on the second floor. Yeah. And what kind of dog was it? It's like a little Frenchie. Okay. Like yeah. No, no, like no, 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 yeah. no, yeah. no, no. They're not going to hear shit. They're going to be sleeping on the bed probably with dad and the baby. The dog weighed more, like weighed like one pound more than the baby. So fuck off. Exactly. So I, I yeah, don't care no. about, yeah, I don't care about that. If you want to use that evidence. I my dogs awake. Oh, if you want to use that evidence, get like a real dog, a big dog. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Chelsea and I, we, we both. We like big mutts and we cannot lie. Get a dog with the right instincts. As we have been telling you guys, get a dog. Yeah, lock your doors. Lock your doors. Yeah. But um all right. I, I swear to God, I hope I hope that this guy Arkansas was one of the guys and I'm I hope he's dead, to be honest. Like I don't you fucking killed a kid. I thought like, you said he hung himself. himself. I know, that's what I'm saying. I hope that was him and I'm glad he's dead. Oh, you hope okay, got you, got it. Uh, what's if your- it wasn't him, I don't know if I'm glad he's dead. But if it was him, I'm glad he's dead. <sighs> All right, y'all. Happy holidays. Be safe. Uh, we'll be back. We'll talk to y'all next week. Bye.